0: Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lithub Radio.
1: Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets, a brand new middle grade
0: novel. And I'm Eve O'Hallam. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Brown. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related topic. And in this episode, we consider what it's like to combine multiple cultures in one madcap romantic comedy when the characters are based on members of your own family. Such a fun topic, raised
1: by a very fun book. Jesse Sutanto's debut novel, Dial A for Aunties, is variously described as crazy rich Asians meets Weekend at Bernie's, and also as a hilariously quirky novel that is equal parts murder mystery, rom-com, and a celebration of mothers and daughters, as well as a deep dive into Chinese-Indonesian culture. As soon as we heard those descriptions, we knew we had to interview Jessie. She is an amazingly prolific and flexible writer. In addition to Dial for Aunties, she's also the author of a YA thriller called The Obsession, which came out in February, and the middle grade fantasy novel Theotan and the Fox Spirit, which is coming out next spring. The film rights for Dial A for Aunties were bought by Netflix in a competitive bidding war. Jessie lives in Indonesia with her husband, her two daughters, and her ridiculously large extended family, many of whom live just
0: down the road. Yeah, and just to be clear, the ridiculously large descriptor was Jessie's, not ours. (laughs) true. So Jessie has described Dial A for Aunties as a love letter to her family. We asked her to tell us about her family and what it was about them that she wanted to recreate in her novel. Here's what she said.
2: So my family is a family of immigrants. All of my grandparents came to Indonesia from China. So first and foremost, I wanted to show not just like Chinese Americans, but Chinese Indonesian Americans, many layers of immigration. Right. Then the second thing I wanted to show was this really big family, but I ended up actually cutting down on the size of the family, because Mm -hmm. my actual family is huge. And I got a little bit overwhelmed when I was trying to um, think of all the characters that would be involved if I stayed Mm -hmm. true to my family. How huge is huge? My dad is one of seven, and my mom is one of nine. I think I have like over 40 uh, first cousins, and then I've lost counts of all my nieces and nephews. (laughs)
0: Wow. Does everyone have to give everybody a birthday present every year?
2: No, thank goodness. But we do have to um, give out red packets at Chinese New Year. So uh, we're always like super broke. (laughs) (laughs) Because the red packets are filled with money. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Can you think of any favorite stories from your family that you'd like to share with us? Mm,
2: So I don't know if uh, you've read the book.
0: Yes, we both have.
2: Yay. Okay. (laughs) So one of the, one of my favorite scenes was when uh, Medhi comes back home and reveals to her mom that, you know, she's accidentally killed her blind date. And then the mom is like, Oh my gosh. And then she calls the rest of the aunties. But before they arrive, she's like, okay, we have to cut fruit for them. (laughs) And that's kind of (laughs) my (laughs) favorite part of the book, because it's totally based on how my own family would react. I mean, obviously not to me coming home with a dead body, (laughs) you know, (laughs) (laughs) we've had like emergencies. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, we need to do something. And then they'd be like, okay, okay, well, we'll call your aunts and uncles. And then they're like, but before that, we need to make sure that there's a
1: feast waiting for them when they arrive.
0: (laughs) So food is love.
1: Yes. (laughs) That's great. So I ask this next question as someone who has tried to capture her family on the page. And Personally, I feel like I didn't do a great job. So I wanted to ask Aww. you as someone else who, who has tried it. Do you feel like you were able to capture it on the page?
2: Uh, yeah. And I think what was really important to me in getting it right was to take characteristics from many, many people and then kind of create. A single character out of that. Hmm. And somehow in doing that, I was able to distance myself from it and yet kind of make it more authentic in a way.
1: The distance is really important. I think that can be a real obstacle. Did you struggle with that at all?
2: Yeah, definitely. I really wanted to write a story about my family for the longest time. But I just could never find the right way of doing it until I added the dead body. And that that gave me distance because, you know, it's never been uh, something that we've had to deal with. Yeah. But, you know, before that, like I tried to go realistic family drama and it just was not working at all.
1: Right. Right. I'm just going to continue with this line of, did you experience drawbacks that I experienced? Did you worry at all about whether someone in your family would get mad at you? Did you sort of struggle with, should that matter? So that was why I really, really
2: (laughs) made sure that each character was unrecognizable. And I was so happy because my mom read it. And she was like, wait, this is not at all like me and my sisters. And I was like, yeah, because it's not <laughs> you and your sisters. And then she was like, okay, well, who is like each character? And then I would tell her like, you know, big aunt is based on this person. And she was like, oh my God, that is so cunning. I really would <laughs> never have guessed. And, you know, second aunt is based on this one. And she was like, oh my God, how did I not
1: see it? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So what has been the response from various aunties and uncles of yours?
2: I only just got my author copies, so they only just started reading. The good news is that uh, my my parents generation are not like as fluent in English, so I'm kind of hoping <laughs> that like, ah, it's just a loss in translation. <laughs>
0: In a note to the reader at the very beginning of the book, you say that while writing some of the aunties in the book, you were, and I'm quoting you here, straddling a very fine line between authenticity and stereotype. Can you tell us first why you say that? And second, how you went about walking that line?
2: Yeah. So while I was writing it, I stumbled upon a racist meme on Facebook. It was, you know, a picture of an Asian kid. Uh, with the caption, I can't even remember what the actual words were, but it was something like that was making fun of broken English. It really kind of hit home to me like, um, I really don't want this book to kind of play into that stereotype of Asians speaking broken English. And yet at the same time, I want to stay true to my family and the reality is that my parents' generation, because they grew up in Indonesia, they're not fluent with uh, speaking English. So then they're when they do speak English, it is broken. Mm-hmm. I was just very concerned that, you know, I didn't want the, the broken English in here to become a source, uh, like a weapon being used against the Asian community.
0: Yeah. And what did you do in the writing of the book to try to walk that line? between authenticity and stereotype?
2: I was so lucky because my uh, editor at Berkeley, she's actually uh, Asian American, and we had a really good talk about this and how to kind of address it in the book. What we decided on was that we would have a lot of scenes where the aunties would be speaking in Indonesian or Mandarin to show that they're very fluent and that they're very intelligent when they're not being like hampered, you know, by having to speak in their third language. And we also show Mehdi, the main character who's kind of grown up in California, struggling to speak Mandarin and Indonesian. And then when she speaks those languages, she comes off with the awkward, broken phrases, and she's the one struggling to understand them. We hope that by doing this, we show that You know, just because someone doesn't speak uh, fluent English, you know, it doesn't mean that they're less intelligent in any way.
0: Yeah. So along these lines, Medhi will sometimes explain cultural nuances. So, for example, when she goes out for dim sum with her mother and her aunties in the opening scene... She says, and again, I'm quoting, Chinese family meals aren't complete without everyone serving food to everyone else because doing so shows love and respect, which means we all need to do it in the most attention-seeking way possible. What's the point of giving Big Aunt the biggest shimai if no one else notices? (laughs) That was really funny. But how do you think about writing for an audience and how do you decide what needs explaining?
2: Oh, that's actually so simple because my husband is English. So all of this is new to him. And after we moved to Indonesia, he was like, you really need to write a book about your family because they're just so different. And everything is just so amazingly different. And I was like, really? No, it's it's normal. It's <laughs> no no one wants to read about this surely is just so boring and he's like no like even the meal times are like a battleground where you know every cousin kind of has to prove that they were the most well raised so as soon as the food arrives my generation will leap up and like
1: (laughs) fight to get at the food so that they can serve it to their elders first (laughs) can you think of You know, any other similar moments where he's like, no, this is not what I mean? Oh, my God.
2: So many. (laughs) When he first arrived, literally the first question that people would ask him, and they would ask him this with a really friendly, sincere smile. They would be like, have you been poisoned yet? Have you had diarrhea yet? Like, have you had to go to the hospital yet? And he's just like, what is going on? And then I was like, oh, it's just normal. Because A lot of foreigners, when they come to Indonesia, you know, unfortunately, they do get food poisoning. And then he's like, well, that's not a very nice question. I was like, no, no, they're being really nice and very friendly and like very concerned. And, you know, sure enough, when he did get food poisoning, they immediately like rushed to like give him their home remedies because... You know everyone has one.
0: Right? Yeah. That's <laughs> right. funny. I can imagine your English husband would, you know, we don't speak of such things, you know. <laughs> that, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, like Mehdi, you've worked as a wedding photographer. Can you share a favorite story or two from your time doing that work?
2: Um, oh gosh, so one time I was shooting the wedding ceremony and I kept stepping backwards. And then I stepped into like this huge pillar of flowers, and it just like crashed, like it toppled over with the loudest cry. And I was ah, and I had to be kind of pulled up by like the groomsmen, and it was all very, very awkward.
0: And this is the middle of the ceremony. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is it true that there are more
1: groomzillas than bridezillas? Yeah, I really think that uh, I I
2: came across more difficult grooms than difficult brides. I think it's mostly because the grooms always requested something more tricky for me to do. So overwhelmingly, if they were to request an edit, it would be, can you make me taller? Which I don't know. I don't know how to make <laughs> someone taller without really distorting their whole like features. I, I don't know. Like, So people would often ask me, you know, can you make me slimmer? I mean, I don't like doing that because you should love your own body and stuff like that. But I try to please the customer whenever I can. So slimming down, you know, I can kind of do but making someone taller is really difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and then they just wouldn't understand like, Oh, well, why are we paying you so much? You know, if you can't even make me taller?
0: It's interesting that the grooms are more concerned about that kind of work because stereotypically you'd think it would be the brides.
2: Yeah, and I always wonder why the brides are the ones who get the bad reputation when, you know, I come across so many more difficult grooms.
0: Okay, so interesting about the grooms. I never would have guessed that it's the groomzillas, not the bridezillas. I know, and
1: I love undermining that stereotype. Yes. Also, can I just say, this applies to men and to women, but why do we obsess so much over height? Like, why do so many of
0: us have this desire to be taller? Well... You may know this, but height is the only factor that correlates with winning a presidential election. So, yeah, clearly just, there's a power thing yeah, with there's height. Something. It's crazy. Although personally, I've never wanted to be taller. Have you? Oh wait, well, wait, and mean, I should say for our listeners, I'm a very average five four. Well,
1: I'm five five. I was the tallest female in my family when I was growing up, and I never really thought about height except I got approval, implicit approval for being. On the tall side, and now I'm the shortest. What well, I'm the shortest
0: member of my current family, and you know I get teased for it. It's annoying. <laughs> there is that moment when you look and you realize that your children are taller than you are, and it's an adjustment for but sure. Yeah, but who cares, right? Like we
1: shouldn't care, and yet there is this thing in society. There are these messages that are sent. Yeah. Speaking of family, I really enjoyed hearing how Jessie tried to get around the problem of upsetting her family while she was using them as the basis of her book. I mean, translating family onto the page can be so problematic. Mm. I, for one, ended up choosing to kill the family memoir that I was working on because of this issue. It just caused so much difficulty and controversy in my family that it it just wasn't worth it. Okay,
0: wait, I I need to interrupt you for one moment because what you just said was, that you chose to kill the family memoir. But what I heard was that you chose to kill the family member.
1: (laughs) Oh, no, no family member was killed in the making of my now dead memoir or the making of this episode. No, you would never do that ever. No, I would never. (laughs) I was somewhat upset during this process, but I didn't kill anyone. Anyway, um, for some authors that go forward with, with, memoirs, I think in particular, are are clearly autobiographical fiction, it can be really problematic. Famously, there's the example of the Norwegian author, Karl Knossgaard, who wrote six autobiographical novels known as My Struggle. He wrote it without paying any attention to how his family would react, although they are very much on the page. Mm -hmm. And then he said... He was like, I was just telling the truth. I just wrote it. It never occurred to me that it would cause problems. And then he says, but I was being very naive. He sent a copy to everyone involved before the first volume was published. And then he says, it was like hell. (laughs) His, His family, his father's family after reading it now refused to have any contact with him. His ex-wife found the whole experience so difficult. She made a radio documentary about it. And he and his second wife went through a deep crisis following the publication of the book. He says, in every couple, there are things you don't talk about. And I
0: did. It sold millions of copies. So. Yeah, yeah. Everything we do has consequences. I don't buy the naivete. I mean, this is a guy who titled his book after... He gave his book the same title as the most prominent Nazi text, right? Mein Kampf, my struggle. Mm -hmm. Like, you can't just get a pass. I didn't know. He knew. He was being provocative and it worked. He sold gazillions of copies. Yeah, yeah.
1: I do think he must have known what would be upsetting, but sometimes you don't know what's going to be upsetting, right? Yes, yes. We recently interviewed an author named Menachem Kaiser for an episode that's really great. He was writing A Family Memoir as well, and he talks about... How um, he included some details about a slipcover on his grandmother's sofa that caused a real brouhaha in his family. (laughs) He
0: ended up having to take that out, and it really truly never occurred to him that that would be problematic. Yeah, sometimes a slipcover is not just a slipcover. Turns out you can't predict these things. (laughs) And I was also so interested um, when Jesse was talking about the letter that she wrote to the readers and how difficult. It is to portray, you know, when something is accurate in one particular situation, in her case, you know, that her aunts do in fact speak broken English, along with speaking several other languages fluently. But when that thing, speaking broken English, also happens to be used as a racist trope, that is a very, as she said, hard line to walk. It just underscores how the work of translating cultures is difficult and complicated. Yeah, I also keep thinking about Matthew Salas's, whom we interviewed in episode 50, another great episode I highly recommend. He wrote a book called Craft in the Real World, Rethinking Fiction and Workshopping, where he essentially said, don't, don't try to translate culture. Just know who it is you're writing for and write for them and don't worry about anyone else. They'll figure it out if they really want to.
1: Yeah. That connects in my mind anyway, to something that Paula McLean said when we interviewed her We recently interviewed her for an episode called When Fiction is More Personal Than Memoir. And she says she has this issue with her, with the authors that she teaches all the time, where they're worried about what their family or others will think about what they're writing. She says that she always tells them, if you have to ask permission emotionally, you're never going to write it and you're never going to tell the truth because you don't
0: believe yet that this is your story to tell. I think she's totally right. In fact, I have never been brave enough even to consider writing a memoir. In fact, I go back 400 years in my fiction just to avoid any portrayals of anything (laughs) familiar to my life. There is wisdom to
1: that, let me tell you. There's safety in that
0: is what what there is,
1: yeah. Yeah. And I think that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts
0: or your favorite podcast player. Be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at Book Dreams pod and on Instagram at Book Dreams podcast. You can find Jesse on Twitter at the Writing Hippo and on Instagram at Q. Sutanto. Many thanks to
1: our producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at Eveohallam.com and me at Sternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com.
0: Until next time, happy book dreaming.
1: Happy book dreaming. Come oh,
0: listen to Book Dreams with Julie and-